Um, And because this is the word of God, I should say, that is Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 5 and running through the rest of the chapter, verse 22, because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, I do ask that you stand, if you're able, as I read this text for us, this Lord's day. So we're reading a section of our broader text, and we're reading Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 5. And we're going to read through verse 22 of that same chapter. Moses wrote as he was carried along by the Spirit of God, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to make, rather to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a pledge, rather a life in pledge. Verse 7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Take care. In a case of leprous disease, to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day. Before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, Or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, You shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. Rather, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Church family, the grass withers, the flowers fade but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, we are continuing 
in part two of an exposition of this broader section of Deuteronomy that began in chapter 23, verse 15, and continues throughout chapter 25. And in this section, you have a collection of what appear to be miscellaneous laws and a concentrated amount of what appear to be miscellaneous laws. Actually, there are times When as you're reading through this section, you begin to wonder what in the world is going on in Deuteronomy. These laws even appear to be disparate at times, unrelated. And so it's it's terribly challenging. If you're with us last Lord's Day, it is terribly challenging for us to detect a single theme or a single thrust or topic in this section. Instead of a single topic, what we find is multiple topics. We find here that God is addressing the various facets and aspects of all of life for his redeemed people. God is communicating to his redeemed people, Israel, as he has brought them out of Egypt, that every facet of their lives belongs to him. They belong to him, body and soul. And so it is with us who have trusted in Jesus Christ. It isn't as if Jesus is to be compartmentalized or added to what we've already been doing all along before we came to know Jesus Christ. Rather, to embrace Jesus Christ is to embrace him as Lord over all. As one author wrote some time ago, James Boyce, who's with the Lord now, Jesus is either Lord over all or he is not Lord at all. And that is, I think, consistent with what Moses is communicating as he's carried along by the Spirit of God and he's writing these words, actually originally speaking these words and then writing these words to the people of Israel who belong to the Lord their God. And yet what we do find, however, is that Moses continues to ask and answer a question. And this is a question that he's been asking and answering throughout the book of Deuteronomy. So it's not unique to our section this morning. We mentioned this question last Lord's Day. I'm going to mention it again because this question does, I think, bubble up to the surface in this text as the question Moses is answering as he's carried along by the Spirit of God. And here's the question. How should God's redeemed people live? How should God's redeemed people live? And to be more specific to the context of Deuteronomy, how should God's redeemed people live in God's good land, the land of Canaan, under God's gracious rule? That is to say, the redemption that God gives us, God's rescuing us, should produce a change of lifestyle. And we find this right here in the book of Deuteronomy in our Old Testaments. And we're answering this question by identifying six attributes. So if you're taking notes, that's what we're doing. We're identifying six attributes that together summarize the life of the redeemed people of God. We began, by way of review, last Lord's Day, unpacking three of these attributes. I'm gonna mention them to you again just so that we are caught back up. I don't expect that you've been ingesting them all week, though perhaps some of you have, and praise the Lord for you. But there are three attributes that we mentioned last Lord's Day. I'll mention those to you now. This is just review from last week's sermon. First of all, we noted that God's redeemed people are to be characterized by compassion. 
God's people are to be characterized by compassion. And we didn't leave this attribute as a kind of standalone. We talked about attribute number one and attribute number two together. Attribute number two is generosity. What God's word communicates time and time again is that compassion or sympathy is insufficient if it's not producing, as it were, works, tangible works of generosity. And this is precisely what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. He didn't merely have compassion upon us as we were lost in our sins and destined to condemnation, but he added generosity to his compassion in the gospel of his son. And so here in the text, we find that God's redeemed people are to be characterized both by compassion and generosity. And then third, we mentioned last Lord's Day that God's redeemed people are to exude justice. Justice is the third attribute we mentioned last week. In other words, our relationships are to be characterized by equity and fairness and impartiality. We are in Christ Jesus to imbibe the character of our just God and to show that character in relationships with one another and with others. So that brings us up to speed. This morning, we are going to identify three more attributes. So three more attributes that characterize God's redeemed people. And so we're going to keep count from last week. So number one is number four this morning. So keeping count from last Lord's Day, the fourth attribute I want to highlight in the text is purity the attribute of purity. And here, I'm I'm interested in in a broader definition of purity than is oftentimes used. You know, purity is one of those terms that, that we've used and employed in various contexts to communicate sexual purity. And purity in Scripture indeed communicates sexual purity, but it's more than that. It's, it's broader than this. Purity throughout Scripture communicates this concept of the absence of sinful contamination. The absence of sinful contamination. I want you to look with me at chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23, verses 17 and 18. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. And none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. Verse 18, you shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, upon a cursory glance at this text, you might assume that this passage is primarily about sexual purity, And although the text certainly deals in the realm of sexual purity, it's broader than this. God requires sexual purity, but these two verses highlight some broader truths. Let me point out some of those. A cult prostitute at this time was someone that sought to worship the gods, or even in this case, that sought to worship God himself by means of prostitution by means of sexual immorality. I don't miss this. What this means is it's possible in this text, it's possible to say, I'm doing this for the glory of God and yet to be doing it in all the wrong ways. In other words, it's, it's possible to at least claim to be aiming for the right end, but to be doing so using the wrong means. 
And this would be an abomination to the Lord. We aren't merely to worship God. We are to worship God in the ways he has instructed us to worship him. And so in a sense, this is a revisitation of the first and second commandments spoken back in Deuteronomy chapter five to worship the Lord your God alone and then to do so in certain ways, not to make any image. That is to say, it's not simply that you worship God, it's, it's how you worship him, God says in his word. And here, here they were not to model, Israel was not to model their worship practices after the inhabitants of Canaan, the pagan nations that they were dispossessing from the land. They were removing from the land. Israel was not to adopt the ways in which they worshiped their gods and just to transplant those ways into the worship of the one true and living God, to stamp it, as it were, with Yahweh, the God who is. And then additionally, in verse 18, this verse prohibits the use of wages earned through prostitution to pay vows made to the Lord. Interesting again, Paying your vow to the Lord is a good thing, right? If you make a vow to the Lord, there are such such things as vow offerings in the Old Covenant. And so you would make a promise or a commitment to the Lord. I'm going to give you such and such, whether it was animals or crops, and I'm gonna do it of my own free will. I'm committing God to give this to you as an act of worship. And here God says, don't do that and use ungodly means to fulfill your promise. Again, it's not simply the end that God is interested in. It's the journey. It's the process. It's the means. How is it that you're serving the Lord? How is it that you're worshiping the Lord? That's why it's perfectly appropriate, brothers and sisters, it is perfectly appropriate and loving when perhaps one of us says to another one of us, but I'm doing it for the Lord. And if it's the wrong thing to be doing, it's loving to look at the other brother, the other sister and say, and yet what you're doing is still an abomination to the Lord. He's told you not simply what the end should be, namely his glory, but how it is you're called to glorify him through obedience in the person and work of Jesus Christ. By the way, the English Standard Translation opts for the translation here, verse 18, of dog. Dog is just another term to refer to a male prostitute. And so verse 17 deals primarily in terms of cult prostitutes, that is prostitution, that took place in these fertility rituals practiced throughout the inhabitants of Canaan. And then verse 18 deals with maybe just your standard run-of-the-mill prostitution and using that prostitution as a means of paying vows you've made to the Lord. So God is concerned with every facet of life among his redeemed people. He's purchased not just the end. He's purchased the journey. He's purchased the process. He's purchased the means. Now look with me at chapter 24, verses eight and nine, and we're gonna jump around just a bit to see these attributes. We won't be able to look at all of these verses equally. Chapter 24, verses eight and nine, take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priest shall direct you as I commanded them. So you shall be careful to do. Verse nine, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the ways you came out of Egypt. That is to say, we're not gonna turn there, but Miriam challenged with Aaron, Moses' authority 
Uh, and in particular, on account of Moses' marriage, and Miriam was struck with a case of leprosy. And so God here uses that example to warn the people of Israel. Now you should keep in mind that leprosy itself was one of those ancient categories for any kind of skin discoloration. Okay, any kind of skin discoloration was given the title leprosy. It even applied to the discoloration or growth, various growths on the walls of houses at times, Leviticus chapter 14. So a house could even get or be afflicted by leprosy. And when someone suffered from skin discoloration, they were likely to be considered unclean. They were placed outside of the camp and there were various instructions depending on how the skin coloration developed or how it stopped perhaps and disappeared as to that person re-entering the camp of the people of Israel. And you can look at Leviticus 13 and 14 if you like on your own time to see the ways in which God instructed his people concerning how to deal with this skin discoloration. Now, why is leprosy a big deal in the Old Testament? We're assuming a little bit here, but I think it's a safe assumption. I think it's reading the text in light of the broader context of Scripture. When there is skin discoloration, the assumption is something's dying. And if something's dying, that reminds the Israelites of what? The presence of sin. Because death is the result of sin. This is why I think, this is why leprosy is dealt with in the ways in which it's dealt. When this happens, when there is, as it were, this symbol of the presence of sin and the presence of death in the camp of Israel, it was to be removed. And God gives very specific instructions concerning how to deal with this case or these cases of leprosy. And so Moses says, be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. In other words, follow God's path and God's avenues for purity. Both moral purity, sexual purity, and ritual purity. You see? We're using that broad concept of purity. And then additionally, and we're not going to spend long here, but I want you to see this, and I don't want to be accused of not dealing with the text. So here we are. I want you to notice what may be the most peculiar instruction we find in Deuteronomy. And to be honest, this is, this is likely the reason why we dismissed their fifth grade. So chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. Look at the text with me if you would. Again, we're talking about this attribute of, of purity And here's what God instructs through Moses. When men fight, chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, when men fight with one another, and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him. Okay? So two men get into a fight, and one of the wives is there, at least one, and sees the fight happening and taking place. Her husband is getting attacked by another man. And if this happens, and she puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts. Now that's in your Bible probably if you're holding an English translation. This is the word of God. Verse 12. Then you shall cut off her hand 
your eye shall have no pity. That is bizarre, isn't it? I mean, let's just be honest. This is odd. It's odd. It feels odd because it's something we don't find anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, it's the only example in the Old Testament where you have physical mutilation or dismemberment as the punishment for a crime. Only place. You have death as punishment for various crimes. But here, you have the cutting off, the lopping off of someone's hand for this particular crime. Well, this is likely for a couple of reasons, and then we're going to move on. A couple of reasons. First, this would have been an impure act. This is indecent. Now, we live in a cultural climate that can't even imagine such a thing. Perhaps because we have grown accustomed to the presence of overt and rank sexual immorality and the exposure of the human body in ways that God does not intend for his people. Modesty in our culture is passe, right? And here, I want you to notice, I mean, modesty is used, for example, in Christian subcultures to refer to how a woman ought to dress and cover portions of her body. But here, it applies equally to the male. It's the male's body. So this is bizarre to us. It's bizarre to a culture that sits down on a couch and turns on for entertainment two people physically and sexually exposed on a screen and calls it entertainment. Right, brothers and sisters? I know... I know there are certain things that acclimate us. And I, I fear, I fear for my own heart, I fear for my children, I fear for you all. And fear may not be the best term to use. I think it's just realistic. I think this is just one of the blind spots of our broader culture. And it's also one of the blind spots of our evangelical subculture. And the concern is that we really don't understand while all Every aspect of the human body belongs to the Lord our God. While, while the gospel teaches us that as Christ died physically, so he cares about the physical body. As we read even to our, our young ones, we read this, this particular book that was published some time ago by Zondervan. The book was called God Made All of Me. And it was a book written to begin a conversation with our young children about every part of their body belonging to God including private parts, every part of their body purchased by Christ, including their private parts. So we do, we do all of those kinds of things. We're still in the midst of this immense challenge of treating as ordinary what is an abomination to the Lord, of treating as harmless entertainment what is an abomination to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's why texts like this take us off guard, I think. And I'm one of them. I'm one of them. This would have been indecent, impure, 
this would have been an abomination to the Lord when the woman did this. And for this reason, she was to be severely punished as an example to the rest of the community of faith. But there's something else going on here, and you need to know this. The other aspect of this punishment, I think, is that such an activity jeopardized the man's ability to procreate. And therefore, this activity was a direct challenge to the promise God made to Abraham and his seed. Built into the fabric of God's promises is God is promising to Abraham and through Abraham to develop from this man a nation and nations that those blessings would go out to other nations and other families, other tribes. And so the promise God made to Abraham was to Abraham and to his offspring his descendants, his seed. And this was an act that jeopardized the seed, jeopardized God's promise, at least at the human level. And so God is considering this an affront to his promise and dealing with this affront with severity. So God's redeemed people or to be characterized by decency, by purity in all areas of their lives. How much more is this the case, church family, now that Christ has fulfilled these promises of God in the law and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within and among us? Israel's purity differentiated them from the inhabitants of Canaan. It differentiated them from other nations. How much more ought the purity of the church differentiate us from the surrounding peoples, from our culture and from other cultures? That's what this is about. I would add, by the way, and and perhaps the caveat is unnecessary, but I don't think so. I think this is something we do confuse from time to time. We're not talking... We're not talking about purity in order to earn God's favor. You understand. These attributes in the text are not in order to secure a right relationship with God. That's not what this is. These are attributes that result from a right relationship with God. And while no Christian exudes these attributes perfectly, right? None of us exude this attribute, these attributes perfectly. We ought to exude these attributes characteristically and faithfully. But you need to understand this. Because anytime, anytime as Christians we begin to talk about God's law or God's instruction or God's commandments, we have an alarm that goes off in our head and the alarm is called the legalism alarm. Right? And the legalism alarm goes something like this. Anytime we are insisting on obedience or insisting on purity, that must be legalism. But that's a misunderstanding, of course, of what legalism is. Legalism says that you must do these things in order to obtain a right relationship with God. As Sinclair Ferguson says, it severs the law of God from the person of God. You begin to get focused on what God said and not focused on God himself. You see? Christian obedience, on the other hand, still, of course, cares a great deal about what God said. But why? Because of who God is. Because we've been given a right relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And so, you see, it's the difference between the root and the fruit. The root, as it were, is 
the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross, on our behalf through the empty tomb, on our behalf even today through his ascension and intercession and prayer for us. But the fruit of Christ's work is purity. The fruit of Christ's work is obedience. So please don't get lost in this. Now what this means What this means, dear friend, is if you walk away from sermons like this, you walk away and and your takeaway is is this, I'm going to clean up the movies I watch. Or I'm going to start committing myself to to purity and to decency. I'm going to live a right life. I'm going to start going to church more frequently and do the right things. And you do all of those things with all of your efforts and you do all of it apart from and without a relationship with God in Christ, it will be futility. It will be futility, friend. What you need fundamentally this morning is the same thing we all need. And it's not anything you can produce. It's not wherewithal that you provide. It must be provided for you. What you need is what God provides through the work of Christ. Because you see, what God demands in his law, he provides in his son. So if you do not yet know Jesus Christ this morning, if you've not surrendered to Jesus Christ, if you've not come to treasure Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you, don't leave here without doing so. Don't leave this place without surrendering to him. And that can begin with a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I recognize that as I read this text, I'm a sinner, I'm impure, I'm indecent, and I need your forgiveness. I need your obedience. Have me. And it's not the prayer, of course, that saves. It's it's the one to whom you pray that does the saving. And if that's where you are, please consider staying after the service and and talking with us so that we can come alongside of you and you alongside of us. You can, as you exit these doors in the back of the main worship center, take a left. And on the right-hand side out there, there's a room called the Crossroads. You'll see it listed just above the entrance of the room. Go into that room and talk with one of our pastors about what it means to treasure and serve Jesus Christ who provides for you what God demands and what you cannot provide for yourself. So, again, God's redeemed people are to be characterized by these attributes, not because we are meriting a relationship with God, but because we are reflecting an already existing and secure relationship with God. Fifth, the fifth attribute of God's redeemed people is, and we'll be brief here, truthfulness truthfulness. Look with me down at Deuteronomy 23 verses 21 to 23. Deuteronomy 23 verses 21 to 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. Verse 22. And we'll actually stop at verse 22. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. This command is not, of course, against taking vows. In fact, it assumes the presence of vows. 
However, the command is against treating vows made to God flippantly and not fulfilling those vows with a sense of of urgency. Put simply, God's people are to be characterized by truthfulness. The words that we speak actually matter to God. They are to be trustworthy as we find in the New Testament. Our words such as yes and no are to be as trustworthy as our vows and our covenants. This is convicting to me as a parent. Something the Lord has used my children to correct in my life. There have been times when, when the kiddos have come to me and they've asked me a question like, Dad, can we, can we do such and such? And, and I'll respond with, well, no, not right now. And, and there have been times when collectively they've said to me, but Dad, we asked you this yesterday and, and you said that today we could do it. Now, of course, assuming that's true. I mean, they have the same problem their dad has. We all need a savior. And Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But when they come to me collectively and they say this, I mean, I believe them. And, and these have been moments for me to say, you know what, then we can. If, if, I can, if I'm able to do it, then we can. And now I've, I've got to do whatever I can to make good on my promise. Why? Because truthfulness matters to God. And because I'm actually teaching my children something about the character of God when I, when I yield myself and submit myself to the standards that God provides in his word, standards that reflect his own character. So when the God of truth rescues people through Christ, he, as it were, begins to work his character into their hearts, into their minds, into their words and into their actions. And that's the idea here. Speak the truth. God's people are to be characterized by truthfulness. Finally, finally, in addition to, and we'll mention all of them here, compassion, generosity, justice, purity, and truthfulness, we find that God's redeemed people are characterized by a sense of duty a sense of duty. How appropriate, by the way, is it that we talk about duty on 4th of July weekend? I would submit to you there may not be men and women in existence who understand duty more than those who have served in our armed forces. Amen? And so here in the text of Scripture, we find that duty is, is an attribute that God's people are to Exude. And let's be honest, duty is not a romantic term. Like, why did you do it? Well, I you know, felt like I had to. It's not especially romantic. In fact, as a concept, it has fallen on hard times in our contemporary culture. People who, as people, I mean, I'm, I'm in this category, people who value what has been called expressive individualism don't typically prize duty. It feels oppressive, maybe, a bit tyrannical. So to speak about duty is to speak about oughtness, something we ought to do. And we're going to revisit this, but I think one of the reasons why this concept of duty is a concern for us, and we're averse to this concept as a culture, is because it seems to conflict with delight. 
If you do something on account of duty, you're not doing it on account of delight. And I'm going to suggest to you that it's possible through the work of Christ for duty and delight to be married, to come together. In fact, in fact, the promise of complete restoration when Jesus Christ returns that I find as comforting as any other promise, not more comforting, but as comforting as any other promise, is that when Christ returns, what I ought to do will always and forever be what I want to do. And what I want to do will always and forever then be what I ought to do. That's good news for people who are broken even in their desires, in their wills. But we're going to revisit that in just a moment. Let's look at the example we find in this text. Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. That's essential to understanding what's happening here. So the firstborn son of this new marriage is to, as it were, perpetuate and carry on the name of the deceased brother. Verse seven. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform, notice, the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her. This is an example where delight conflicts with duty. You see? I don't wish to take her. I don't want to take her. And as a result, I'm not going to take her. Verse nine, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal Right? Pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house, verse 10, the name of his house shall be called in Israel. How about this? The house of him who had his sandal pulled off. hey, we're going to a friend's house for supper tonight. Where are you going? I'm going to the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> so foreign to us, isn't it? There are so many things that are happening in the text. We'll try to unpack a bit of it. This practice, this practice is known traditionally as leveret marriage, and, and leveret's just a, a word that we've brought over into the English language from Latin, meaning brother-in-law, levere, brother-in-law. And there were certain circumstances that when present, when these circumstances all came together, a brother-in-law in a position of duty was to marry his deceased brother's widow. So two brothers 
One of those brothers dies. And the other brother was to marry the widow of his deceased brother. But there were, a certain, uh, there were certain circumstances that must be true for this to happen. First of all, by the way, there were times when it shouldn't happen, as God's word tells us elsewhere. We won't turn those, to those passages. But here were the circumstances. First, to state the obvious, well, the brother must be dead. Okay? That's clear in the text. The brother must be dead. Second, the brothers lived in the same broader household. And so they shared, as it were, households and, and they shared this land, perhaps juxtaposed or alongside of one another. This brother's field was next to this brother's field. And then third, the deceased brother and his widow did not have a son to inherit the deceased brother's land and to continue his name in Israel. Don't miss that. So this only happens when, when a brother dies, a brother with whom another brother basically shared a household. And the brother that died, who was married, left his widow without a firstborn son. That is to say, without someone who could inherit what belonged to his father. And without someone who could perpetuate the name of his father throughout Israel and for future generations. So when all these circumstances came together, it was the duty of the living brother to marry the widow of his deceased brother and to sire a son, to have a son. But the son was not his own. The son was not to be viewed as his own. The son was to be viewed as belonging to the deceased brother. And in a sense as bringing his brother back to life, to perpetuating his name. So then the son, this son that would result from a new union in marriage, he was to occupy the place of heir. Heir to everything owned by the deceased brother. When, when this didn't happen, and we're going to revisit this, boy, it's rich. When this didn't happen, that is when the living brother refused, he was to be publicly shamed for, for not fulfilling his duty as a brother. Why? Because he refused to preserve the name of his deceased brother. He refused to commit himself to duty. He refused self-sacrifice. And because he refused to perpetuate the name of his brother, his name was changed to the name of him who had his sandal removed. Who had his honor removed. The man who refused to do what God has called him to do. And for this reason, God was taking from him what he refused to provide. There is something else you need to keep in mind for the instruction to make any sense at all. And we mentioned this a few moments ago and we're gonna wrap up shortly. But God's covenant with Abraham consisted of land. Remember that? 
Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and so forth. God made a promise to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants, Abraham's offspring, and this promise included land, the land of Canaan. And so descendants in land were central to God's promise. So the brother's refusal to fulfill his duty and that is to have a son in the name of his deceased brother was an act, another act of, of hostility, not just to the widow and not just to his deceased brother. It was an act of hostility to God's promise to Abraham. You've got to get that to understand these kinds of instructions in the Old Testament. Because if the deceased brother did not have an heir, who inherited the land as a result? the living brother. So two brothers, one of them dies without an heir. Who gets the land? The living brother. He gets to add to his portfolio. His 10 acres becomes 20 acres. Or his 20 acres becomes 40 acres. You see? What God is calling the living brother to do is is to sacrifice. Because the land at this point belonged rightfully to the living brother. It was his. And so the living brother, don't miss this, was to rescue the name of his dead brother out of death by giving up what rightfully belonged to him. Does that sound like anything to you? What rightfully belonged to the living brother, he was told, don't grasp it. Don't hold on to it. Give it away so you can rescue your brother out of death in a kind of resurrection. What happens in the gospel, church? The eternal son of God gives up what rightfully belongs to him right? All the more. He gives up what rightfully belongs to him, equality with God, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. He gives up heavenly glory. He becomes human, dies on the cross, and rises from the dead. Why? To rescue out of death you and me, and to make us heirs, to perpetuate our name. That's what this is. This is in seed form a promise of what God is doing through the greater brother. It's one of the reasons I think that the Hebrews author in the New Testament calls Jesus our elder brother. This is precisely how he rescues us. And this reminds us again, friends, church, that before we are ever in a position to live rightly as God's people, with a sense of duty, or with any other attribute we find in the text, we must come to know the one who fulfilled this demand for us in his incarnation, death, and in his resurrection. And when we come to know Jesus, and I told you we'd revisit this and we'll do it briefly as we close. When we come to know Jesus Christ, then we come to realize that duty can finally meet delight. You see? When we come to know Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us, now what we ought to do becomes slowly, progressively by the work of God's spirit, what we 
want to do. And this is why William Cooper wrote these words. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there are so many items in these texts and we are grateful for the privilege this morning of having the opportunity to walk through a portion of this text together. We pray, O God, that you would call us to be the people you've rescued us to be, to walk in those good works that you've prepared beforehand for us to walk in. But, O God, to do so out of gratitude and out of delight in what you have accomplished for us through the person and work of Jesus. Teach us, O Father, through the work of your Spirit to be people characterized by compassion and generosity and justice and purity and truthfulness and to be people characterized by duty, all because we are people who have come to know you in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In his name and for his sake, we pray these things. And all God's people said, Amen.